0: Good evening and welcome my dear listeners to Voices of the Sacred Feminine broadcasting across the globe for eight years now. Speaking for those who have no voice, speaking truth to power, uncovering history that uh, is yet to be discovered, and sharing the news of the cognitive minority as we begin to manifest a new normal, perhaps, for the quality of life for the most of us. And a shout out to Zingaya for their wonderful music. Um, tonight you heard a snippet from their cut No Man's Land. And uh, I don't know why, maybe it's just me, but it kind of feels like it sets the mood for for tonight's show about one of Egypt's most uh, famous women. I'm sure you've heard her name, Hatshepsut. I always feel that music reminds me of riding atop a camel as it lopes across the sand dunes. You know, I'd really love to do that again. I rode a camel in Petra, Jordan, you know, where they filmed the Indiana Jones movie, and what a kick that was. Maybe after this upcoming group tour that's coming together for uh, Sacred Sites in Turkey, we'll go back to Egypt in 2016. Well, um, let's get right to it tonight. Uh, We have a very special guest. Uh, You might know her. If you're an Egyptophile like me, you don't miss the new programming that uh, uh, is always on television on All Things Egypt. Uh, She and her husband produce the Discovery Channel's Out of Egypt series, Uh, back in 2009. She was the co-curator of the King Tut exhibit here in L.A. for the L.A. County Museum of Art. She's an Egyptologist and professor of Egyptian art and architecture at the University of California in L.A., specializing in craft production, coffin studies, and economies in the ancient world. And I had the great pleasure of getting a feel for her humor and down-to-earth appeal at the Getty last week. Uh, I have to tell you, I had to jump through a dozen hoops to get tickets to that sold-out presentation, and I can see why it was sold out. And I believe it was standing room only at the or too. Now I only wish I could figure out a way to audit her classes. Uh, tonight, we have Cara Cooney with us. Kara, uh, thank you so much for your time, and welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, as I said, I loved your presentation at the Getty. Uh, I loved in your talk how you started it out, comparing how society, society judges women differently than men. You showed images of Hillary, Condoleezza Rice, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, you and you very astutely reminded us that you know what we tend to, uh, you know, even people who consider themselves uh, maybe more evolved, even feminists, uh, you know, we look at their clothes, we look at their hair, we want wonder if they're attached uh, to a male that's there to help prop them up if uh, they get into trouble. You know, things that we never think about men, and I know that's kind of important when you talk about uh, Queen Hatshepsut's life, but why don't you first tell us uh, what it was really like for women in these times? You know, we've heard stuff like uh, Egyptian women had more rights than women in other parts of the world. They could maybe divorce their husbands, have assets. You know, is this accurate? Did women really have it significantly better in Egypt? Was there, I mean, was there even uh, female genital mutilation back then, FGM? do we know?
1: Oh, well, to, to start with the last part, you know, I don't know about female genital mutilation if it actually existed in ancient Egypt, but it's very common in, in Egypt today, and it is an African practice, and it's not connected to Islam, and so it, it is possible, though there's no, there's no evidence of it that I know, though I do know evidence of male circumcision, but of course they're completely different things and you can't compare them at all. Right. But as for um, females and female power in ancient Egypt and the ancient world, you know, Egypt is a is a special place. And I would say that the the female... It's a patriarchal society. Every complex society is patriarchal, even if, if there's matriarchal lineage systems. All power systems in every complex society are patriarchal for a variety of reasons. And that's something I think we just have to own. Ancient Egypt was patriarchal like every other place. However, starting with its, with its religion, women were given more power. And I'm not going to talk about powerful goddesses um, or or those role models and, and say something as simplistic as if you have powerful goddesses, women have power in the society because we know that's not true.
0: Yeah, because I mean, look at India.
1: India I, I, with Kali and Durga and how are women actually treated in the society compared to men. Yeah, exactly. It's a completely different thing. Or look at um, ancient Greece. and You have these, these badass goddesses, Athena and um, Demeter and yet they're, well, maybe well, let's go with Athena or Hera. And um, and the Greek society allowed women very little voice, very little power politically or even in the household. Now, compare that to ancient Egypt, and Egypt had some badass goddesses, you know, goddesses that, that were very fierce, that drank blood, that it had to be appeased. Um, but more importantly, Egypt had a sky goddess and not a sky god, and an earth father rather than an earth mother and those differences are important because at the core of it all Egypt the Egyptians believe that the earth started with a masculine sexual big bang that it was all about the masculine sexual creation that's what brought the world into being and that belief system so you're like okay why does this give females power but when the Egyptians believe that if a woman can't have a child it's the man's fault that right there gives a woman a a certain kind of power that she wouldn't have in medieval England, that she wouldn't have in most of Europe, and that she wouldn't have in in most of the world. So it, it starts there with the religion. And then the other reason that women are able to enter into the highest levels of power more easily in ancient Egypt than anywhere else in the world is because we're talking about a society that is so segregated, separate, and safe it's got a desert on three sides. It's got the Mediterranean Sea to the north. It's um, it's a place where where you don't have to deal with invasions, where you don't have to deal with, with ethnic movements and religions coming in and out. And It's, it's a place where father-to-son succession in a dynastic kingship is so revered that it becomes divinized. And so if a king is too young or if there's a problem with the succession and there's no male heir a woman is more allowed, um, is more welcome in Egypt where people want continuity, they want the status quo, and their culture works towards it rather than a place like ancient Greece or Iraq where where competition is the norm. Um, right. Egypt, w- the Egyptian culture supported continuity to such an extent that women were allowed to enter into the system.
0: Well, I remember you saying that in the talk, but I'm wondering, was it different for the average woman? Because, you know, obviously it was the elite, but do we, it is, uh, I mean, I know you study the, you know, the coffins and the grave goods. Um, Is it possible to know if the average woman had more rights in Egypt?
1: It is possible to know, while I'm studying those coffins and those grave goods to get to that information, I study a place called Deir el Medina, D-E-I-R-L Medina, and that's the modern Arabic name for an ancient craftsman's village that preserves all kinds of information, written information, they wrote all kinds of things down, and I was looking at Deir el Medina to understand how much coffins cost, and how much people were, were paying to have them painted or constructed, and how much they would pay for certain materials. In that, that treasure trove of texts and letters and receipts and all kinds of documents, there's documents, there's letters written by women to other women. There's documents about women bringing up charges against men for rape or beating. There's documents about divorce, where women are allowed to get divorced and they are allowed to bring the, the property that they brought into the household out of the household. There's one famous document called the Will of Naunach, where this older woman makes her final will and testament and disowns Almost all of her children, because they didn't help her in her old age, and so she cuts them off and gives her money instead, her wealth instead, to those offspring that did help her in her old age. So, Hmm. and that's a village. That's a craftsman's village. It's not a peasant village. It's a village of educated people. It's not an elite village. It's not a palace society. It's not a place where courtiers or priests, high priests, are going to live. But it's it's a place that's connected to the highest levels of society and to the lowest levels, and they're in the middle. You actually do see in that quotidian, that quotidian context, you see women with a, a reasonable amount of power in their households vis-a-vis their husbands compared to other places. Women running businesses out of their homes for linen uh, weaving to, to create their own space in the world um, uh, separate from their husbands. Um, th- there is evidence for this in Egypt, not just for Jerome Medina, but in other places and other times as well.
0: Okay, and um, at her uh, her funerary temple there across the Nile, um, you know she's got these beautiful columns of you know with Hathor's head uh, on top the columns. Um, You know we hear that Cleopatra the seventh, you know the famous one we all hear about, believed that she was the embodiment of Isis. Do we know if Hatshepsut had such notions? Uh, Did she have a special connection with Hatshepsut?
1: Hatshepsut, I'm sorry,
0: with Hathor, yeah. did Hatshepsut oh, have a connection with Hathor, yeah. Hathor? Hathor, right?
1: Yeah. Hatshepsut linked herself to a number of goddesses and linked herself to that power. But and we're talking about Mut, the, the consort of Amun-Re, Re, who who is a vicious lioness when she's threatened or when her children or father are threatened, but is very calm and kind when when not. Um, Sakmet Pachet, she who scratches, another lioness goddess, and Hathor. Um, who, who is associated with beauty and love and softness, but can also be quite cruel when she's threatened or when her family members are threatened. So Hatshepsut did know to connect herself to those goddesses, but interestingly, when she built that temple of millions of years, she depicts herself as a man in connection to those goddesses. In the text, she may refer to herself as a female, but in the imagery, even in the scene where she's suckling from the cow goddess Hathor, she's underneath the cow, suckling from the udder, taking on that divine milk. Her imagery, the way she looks, is as a man. So Hatshepsut is not identifying herself with the goddess. Very different from Cleopatra. She fits herself into the kingship as a man. And that gives you an idea of how Hatshepsut had to fit herself to the kingship. Unlike Cleopatra in some ways, who was able to... To have her own feminine self and her own sexuality and all, all of those um, feminine things, she was able to keep. Hatshepsut could not. She had to. She had to, to represent herself as a man. And when she connected to those female goddesses, do so in a in a manly way as a king. the The Egyptians had no word for queen. The word for queen has no. Po- or, sorry, they had no political word for queen. The way we use it today, there's no political connotations for that word. It's just. Some, it's a woman who's connected to the king. Almost so like when the, we, so, so yeah, when
0: we refer to her then, Kara, should we? How should we call her? How should we address her? Should we say King Hatshepsut?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it depends on the time period you're, you're talking about because she was a queen when she was married to the II. She was a queen and a god's wife of Amun when she was regent to the III. But or Queen Dowager, Dowager Queen, and God's wife of Amun. But then when she ascended the throne in year seven of Moses III's reign, she became a king, and she masculinized her, herself. But here's an interesting thing. She knew that she was female. She didn't try to hide it in the text. But she added an element to her name, Hatshepsut, which means foremost of noble ladies. She added an element, the one who united with Amun. So she actually takes herself, her person, and says that I have mind-melded, I have connected with the god Amun-Re. I know his mind, and he knows mine, and I am him, and he is part of me. So she takes her femininity a step forward and then links herself not to Isis, not to Hathor, but to a masculine entity, a god of creation, the god Amun-Re. That's Hatshepsut's um, clever, clever and intriguing way of taking the throne and keeping the throne.
0: Well and and you know what what I found really interesting about that was uh as well you know you you referred to how you thought part of her success had to do with the fact that um you know she created so many positions she uh handed out money she handed out boons she handed out titles um and it you know when you talked about it it almost sounded like it was a payoff but do you think it was really just more a sharing of wealth?
1: No, politics is always a payoff. I mean, <laughs> you know, you can you can look at today's politics and you look at lobbyists and certain people giving to campaigns and you can think of it as a sharing of wealth. And the person who's giving the money might say, hey, you know, I just really like Mitt Romney or I really like Barack Obama and I just really want to give to this campaign. I believe in this campaign. I believe our, our country will benefit from this campaign. But when you get down to brass tacks, it's a payoff. It's always a payoff. When that wealth is exchanged, you've created a gift debt. You've created a debt that has to be paid back. And Hatshepsut knew that. She needed to create debt because she was in a compromised position as a female with a young child on the throne. And so she made sure that, that she orchestrated that situation. Anytime you give something to anybody, there is always a debt created. Think about the last time you got a present and you didn't have one in, in return. And what you feel inside and how you I feel see. that debt. There's no such thing as just sharing of wealth. It doesn't exist. People don't work that way. They account mentally and emotionally for each thing that is exchanged, how it's exchanged. Is it fair? Is it not? And, and what do they have to give in return? People are constantly doing this. And kings and queens and power players are constantly doing this. And elites are – she's working the balance with her elites in a way that no other king has had to do because they haven't been as compromised as she has.
0: I see. I see.
1: And so she's actually economically losing in, the, in balance to her elites. Meanwhile, she's creating a she's creating a basis of elite power that serves Egypt well in the long run, because that power is broadened and, and and you have a elite who are producing and and who are adding to the economy. It's not a bad thing, but the throne does lose in that balance of elite power
0: versus royal power. I see, I see. Well, and what, we got into some of the Q&A at the end, um, and I wanted to just sort of clarify, when she's no longer on the throne and the, and the next king comes along, forgive me, I get their names confused, I, I forget who the next king was, but he eventually at some point um, sort of wipes her from history, you know, chisels her name and face, um, you know, out of all her accomplishments. did Were you trying to say that you thought he did that because, you know, maybe he, and also you mentioned sort of in the same breath, I think, that his her daughter was made to disappear. Do you think he was afraid of this powerful, fe, you know, female accomplishments? He didn't want the daughter to do to him what Hatshepsut had done? So he disappeared the daughter. He disappeared Hatshepsut's accomplishments, um, you know, simply, you know, a, a, about competition.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I was just talking to students about this today after my Women in Power class because I we, we were talking about Hatshepsut today and, and the, her legacy and the III cracking down on female power in the 18th dynasty. Early 18th dynasty is known as a time of intense female power, um queens and dowager queens are, are ruling on behalf of young men who are the king um, or when their husbands are off on campaign. And it, it's been argued that for the first 70 years of the 18th dynasty, women ruled for 70% of the time, even though there was a man on the throne almost the whole time, or the whole time. Um, so essentially, let me put it this way. It's a complicated idea, so let me let me see if I can explain it. It, it, Betsy Bryan, who is my thesis advisor, and has worked on gender and power in ancient Egypt, says that if the king is the center of the wheel, then the females around him—his sisters, his wives, wife's sisters, his mother, his his daughters—are the spokes of that wheel. And then go further out from the wheel and, and think of the the edges of that wheel. Then you've got elite courtiers and priests and all of the support and bureaucracy and military of the Egyptian system. The people who can take the most power from the king directly are the spokes, are the women. And in the early 18th dynasty, they could, they did. Hatshepsut was able to step in and take a tremendous amount of power from Trip Moses III. He had to share it with her. If she's pushing her daughter into the same kind of position, if he's married to her daughter, Neferi, which he likely was, and if Neferi, as God's wife of Ammon, is moving up the political... um, in, 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 up the political ladder, if you like, and making decisions, then Tutmosis III knows that once he, once Nefere either dies or he disappears or whatever happened, we don't know, and once Hatshepsut dies, and he's got to deal with all of these other 18th Dynasty daughters and sisters, the best way for him to keep those women in control is to get rid of any foundation of power, knock out the god's wife of Amun priests position. Emasculate, well, so horrible, so I shouldn't say that. But, but hamstring it. Take away its its financial source of power, and and make sure that you put someone in there who's going to support you, like your mother, instead of your wife or your sister or your daughter. Don't put a young person in there. Put an older person in there. Take away the funds. Take away take away all of its of its financial assets. And he did that, and so he was able to remove the power from the women who were actually closest to him and move that power back to himself or to elites and spread that power out more broadly amongst those elites. It was a clever way of making sure that the power was more centralized within himself as a person and that his bureaucracy was working directly for him as a person and that there was no female involvement. Uh, The legacy is, is rather sad because female power was... Was hamstrung for generations after Hatshepsut.
0: Hm. Well, and 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 I believe you said we really don't know what ends up happening to her daughter. She just sort of disappears from history.
1: Yeah, that's the most frustrating thing to me. I wish I could tell you more.
0: Right. 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 Um, but
1: I can't. Yeah. I. I she, there, there are all kinds of Stela where people think they see her name, and those Stela name her as God's wife of Amun, or they name her as the king's great royal wife, and. But her, she's been replaced. Did she die naturally? Was she killed? The way the Egyptian system works speaks against her being murdered. The way that Moses the Third works, not murdering Hatshepsut, even though he had the reins of military power, speaks against that kind of assassination. But anything is possible when when everything is cloaked in ideology and in, in the the messages that we receive as Egyptologists thousands of years later.
0: Right, right, right. I mean, I often imagine, you know, uh, thousands of years from now, when somebody uncovers Las Vegas from the sands of time, you know, how are they going to write history? You know, they're going to think, you know, all of that was, um, you know, something significant and maybe something other than what it really was, you know, it just... Kind of a funny idea, but um, you know I, I think we have this romanticized idea of what life was like in the ancient world, and you know having been to Egypt myself and you know seen the wonders of what the tombs looked like and the jewelry and the museum and stuff, you know I think we get this you know, this illusion of uh, of how life was. But, you know, in the talk, you, you know, very candidly talked about, well, you know, their short lifespans. You said, you know, probably many of them live with parasites. I think you even said blood in their urine. I think we know that a lot of the pharaohs had bad teeth from their mummies. Um, you know, it, do we need to dispel that illusion, you know, that life was good? I mean, was it really that difficult? Were, were people that bad off?
1: It's the greatest difference between us and them. And the only way to understand the ancient world is to understand that ancient anxiety. We, we can separate ourselves from death for decades. Decades. How, my son is four and a half and he's never seen a dead body. He has no association with death. He's never never been a part of it. I don't think I saw a dead body until my grandmother died when I was 12. That's an extraordinary separation, between really what is the normality of organic life. And w- we're able to, to, remove, to remove ourselves from these normal occurrences of sex and death and, 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 and all of these things and, and sickness in, with antibiotics and, and other medical advances in a way that the ancient people absolutely could not. And so, I mean, have you, when was the last time you had conjunctivitis? You know, everyone gets pink <laughs> Never, eye, right? Yeah. My son sneezed in my eyes, and I got viral pink eye in both eyes. That was awkward, right? But I wasn't worried about it getting more infected and swelling, and my eyeball swelling and losing an eye. And then I could do nothing about it. When, have you ever broken a bone? Did you worry about death because you broke that bone? Have you right. have you ever had a kid who, you know, was coughing and sick, and you're worried that that kid, you, you take him to the hospital or a doctor, and you know, you figure it out but you're not worried about death. Right. And most people don't
0: think about infant mortality either.
1: They don't. You know, I have a friend who's lost a child, a baby, and she can't even talk about it with her friends because it's almost shameful. It's so aberrant and strange to have lost a baby that people don't know they don't know how to react. We give presents before the baby's born at a shower. That's something that you wouldn't do in the ancient world. It would have been jinxing it. The the amount of anxiety that we don't have is a lot. And to try to put ourselves into that place, to try to understand how they thought, what their agendas would be, what their fears would be, and how they were able to shut themselves off from some of those emotions, that's where I try to put myself, because it's, it, it helps me to understand them better and their motivations better, and how you I know mean, just how they they live their lives. We we have so much more time. We have teenage years. We we let our kids talk back to us. We we you know we we don't demand as much from them because we don't have to. We have space. Um, well, it's, it's well, a very
0: well big, life. Well, to piggyback on that, and and this will be the, my closing question because I know you have to go. Um, You know, I I think what really amazes me when I think about how uh, people who were so young could take the throne, you know, whether we're talking about Cleopatra as a teenager or some of these people you talked about in your talk, even um, I think Hatshepsut wasn't that old. I mean, how I'm trying to understand how people must have been different then that somebody who was 15 or 16 years old could run a country.
1: It is an extraordinary thing. It, it really is. And I've read a lot of Egyptological musing about this, at, where people are just thinking off the top of her head, of course she can't be 16 years old. Who could rule the country at 16? And I'm here to say, no, ancient life is different, and ancient experience is different, and training is different, and what is expected is different. And, of course, she could have done it at 16. She would have been training from the time she was four. And what I let my four-year-old get away with, Hatshepsut would never have gotten away with. No way. And nor would the III. What these people had to inhabit, the responsibility that they had to shoulder at the highest levels was intense. And, I mean, if you believe that she's, high, she's going to be God's wife, of and high priestess, maybe starting at the age of 8 or 9 working for her father, and if you believe that your manipulation of a god created the sexual reawakening for him to make sure that, the, that civilization continued and creation continued, and you believe that at 8 or 9, and you saw things with your own eyes that made you believe it. I mean, that's an extraordinary responsibility to take on. And if we gave our children those kinds of responsibilities, if we demanded it of them, I suspect they would they would fall in line. But we don't need to. We're allowed. We can give them space. We can give them that time. So, yeah, yeah I, think she, I think she could have done it, yeah. Okay. My own grandmother. Well, I think of my own grandmother whose mother died at 9. She came home from school one day, and her mother was laid out on the table, Covered with black crepe. And from nine years old, she had to take care of her three younger siblings and cook all of the clothes, do all of the laundry, and make sure that those kids got to school and do everything for them at nine. And that's yeah. that's only 1910. So, I, you know, I don't understand why Hatshepsut couldn't have ruled all of Egypt with the help of a lot of courtiers at 16. And that doesn't mean that how she ruled vis a vis those courtiers at 16 wasn't different when she was 25. Of course it was. Right. She knew how to claim her power when she was older. One thinks very differently and can analyze much more clearly at 25 and 16. But that doesn't mean that she couldn't have pulled it off.
0: 16, right, right, I understand. Well, Kara, thank you so very much. I know you um you know couldn't give us the full hour tonight, but it's been fun and uh very informative and I think you uh really sort of opened our eyes uh to different things that we hadn't considered before about uh, uh life in Egypt and and Hatshepsut. So thank you so very much for uh being on the show tonight.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. You asked a lot of really interesting questions. Made me think about things in a different way. So thanks a
0: lot. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, it, your your book is wonderful, and your work is wonderful. And um, I'm just so glad you're out there, and you're so much fun. I, I just so enjoyed Aww. your down your, your you know your the the way you presented the talk. I mean, you know, so many scholars, you know, your eyes will glaze over, but I mean, you know, yeah. you had you had everybody in the palm of your hand from the first words uh, that, that left your lips. Um, You're you're really a great uh, presenter. So thank you so much much. for a nice evening. Great. Thank you. Okay. All right. Good night. Well, dear listeners, I'm sure you enjoyed that as much as I. I'm sorry she couldn't stay with us longer, but uh, we need to be grateful for the time she could allot us. She is a busy, busy lady. Um, And uh, just a shout-out to uh, Sarah Jean. You know, I am so happy that uh, you were listening when I asked for uh, an audio effects file uh, for what I'm always encouraging you to find, meaning your sacred roar, uh and thanks to Sarah Jean we actually have a sacred roar now on the show give a listen give a listen one more time that is our Sacred Roar. So thank you, Sarah Jean, for sending me that MP3. And I want to mention Dorma, too, who was trying to help with this as well. But Sarah beat you to it. <laughs> so thanks, ladies. I'm so glad you're part of Voices of the Sacred Feminine Family. And uh, that's going into the special effects archives for the show. So um, tonight's show is uh, going to be very short, and uh, we are going to uh, you know, call it uh, at this point, uh, I'm going to close the show with a quote from Louise Perret, uh, because I think we might be having some audio difficulties, uh, unfortunately. I'll have to see um, at the end of the show, but I hope this actually aired. Um, with You know, with Mercury Retrograde, who knows? But anyway, um, I love this quote from Louise M. Perret, and I think it is so uh, so appropriate Um and uh, and and so powerful and so right on it feels like it speaks to the times and it goes like this the world is remade through the power of fierce women performing outrageous acts of creative rebellion haha well thank you my dear listeners uh for tuning in for my interview with uh Kara Kuni and uh, I am going to go ahead and close tonight's show uh, with this music from Diva Haley uh, called Isis in tribute to uh, tonight's show topic of Ancient Egypt. Here goes.
1: Will you donate to the illusion of the ego? Are you ready to directly face the truth of your essential self? It is time to set yourself free.